Turn with me to Psalm chapter 26. Psalm chapter 26. Will you stand with me for the reading of God's word? Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity, and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind, for your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I will walk in your faithfulness. I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Do not sweep my soul away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men, and whose hands are evil devices, and whose right hands are full of bribes. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground. In the great assembly, I will bless the Lord. This is the Lord's word. Let us bow before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the authority of your word. We are thankful for the inspiration, the work of your Holy Spirit to inspire the words that are here before us. Lord, we would ask for the same spirit to work in our hearts, to give us ears to hear, to give us feet, in obedience, Lord, to follow what your word says. Lord, we ask that you would be with us this morning, that you would use your word to sharpen, to challenge, to strengthen, to encourage, to rebuke, in every way to to lift up your people. We would pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As Christians, we face trials of various kinds. There are many challenges we go through. We know that it's not true when people will say that if you just come to Jesus Christ, that all your troubles, all your fears are going to be just immediately uh, taken away from you. We know that there are struggles that we have. There are challenges. That we face the same challenges that that everybody faces. Even as Christians, we have challenges that we go through. Um, We might experience difficulty of of health, maybe a difficult health diagnosis, uh, the loss of a job, uh, maybe challenges of just not having enough income to support your family, There's just a list of things that that we may face that may bring stress, that might bring anxiety to our life. But we want to imagine for a moment or picture for a moment what David is going through in our psalm. Imagine for a moment that you have been falsely accused of something that you did not do. So in the psalm that is here before us, in Psalm 26, the the backdrop for this is, is uncertain But what we do know is that there have been some false accusations about David and that he is coming before the Lord to bring these accusations uh, before the Lord. What do you do when you have been unjustly accused of something that maybe you did not do? What recourse do you have? Where do you go? Where do you find a place to stand? So in our society, we have things set in place um, that we can do. If somebody has uh, wrongfully accused us of something or somebody has betrayed us in a way that is, is criminal, um, we have things that we can do. So I went online and uh, 
just, you know, Googled what do you do, you know, if you face betrayal, and I found this website from some attorneys in Texas, and they give a list of things that you can do, and I just want to briefly cover some of those for your edification here. The first thing that if, if you have experienced some difficulty is to stay calm. That's the first advice uh, that they give to you. And then the second word of advice is hire an attorney to help you fight back against this with their number underneath, of course, um, underneath this. Uh, gather evidence, you know, that there's, there's this false accusal has happened, so you gotta gather the evidence. The next thing to do is to challenge the accuser's credibility, uh, to find your own witness, to present evidence of your side of the story. And so in other words, what you wanna do is turn the charges around. Here they're making these charges against you, and so what you need to do now is to turn the charges around against them. And then just remember that defamation is illegal in the state of Texas. Sorry, that's where the website was. What, what do we do if we uh, have been falsely accused? Where do we turn? What do we do? Now, it's interesting because David, who is writing to us, we know uh, he became king. Um, and there are many accounts that we can look at in his life, many different events that happened where this psalm may directly apply. There are, are certainly circumstances both later in his life and even early on in his life where we could say this psalm is really an application to that. But I really, I, I, and, and I'm not the only one that thinks this, but I think in, in looking at this and reading through 1 Samuel and, and understanding this better, that one of the, probably the, the best examples we have of David being wrongfully accused was when he was being chased by King Saul. And we know, we know the story and what, what had happened in his life there that Saul has, has been chasing him and, and Saul comes to this cave with his men. He goes inside of the, 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 uh, the cave to use the restroom. And it was while he is in there that David is also in this cave. Doesn't let, David does not lay a hand on King Saul, but takes a, a part of his garment. And then afterward, David speaking to Saul, and this is what the text says in mean, 1 Samuel 24, 8 through 12. And listen closely to what, what David says here. Afterward, David also rose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, my lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against the Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe is in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you, and may the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. David was not treasonous in his dealings with Saul. David was not in his heart longing to, to take Saul's life, even though um, some of his men had maybe had counseled him to do that. Um, and it's interesting because even Saul, in the counsel that he has received, is that, that he has received... That, um, that David seeks to harm him. And so Saul is pursuing him, is chasing him. And so when we read this psalm, while we don't know for sure the occasion of Psalm 
26, I like to think that, that here we have a psalm that, that may be very likely related to David very early on in his encounters with, with King Saul and what he is going through. Because as we look at this psalm, beginning at verse 1, Vindicate me, O Lord. We, we really consider that, that here is David, and he is coming before the Lord because the king himself, the king of Israel, is standing against him. So I tend to, to like to think that, that, that possibly this, the occasion, again, is uh, Saul's pursuit of David. This morning in our time together, as we consider this psalm, and I really simply just want to work through Psalm 26 and, and understand and, and, and apply the text here. Um, originally, I had five points, but I don't think there are many sermons where you have five points, so I've narrowed it down to three, uh, three main points that I really want to cover in our time as we gather here, and I just want to briefly go over those with you. First, I want to look at verses one through three and see the appeal that David makes to the Lord. And look and consider the nature of David's appeal that he brings to the Lord, considering his circumstance. Secondly, I want to deal with and, and, and look at verses 4 through 8 and consider the strong assertions that David makes regarding his integrity and in relationship to that of wicked men and, and hypocrites and so on as contrasted with his worship of the Lord in the assembly of God's people. Along with that second point, so this is probably, you could say, point B, um, we want to see that David gives a brief second appeal there in verse 8, that there is a second appeal that is made in light of the assertions of his integrity uh, that are given. And then finally, we want to see, in conclusion, David's confident statement of faith. As he brings his request before the Lord, what is the conclusion, what is the summation of this psalm that, that brings us to that place where David begins with a prayer and then there is a conclusion as to where he stands in relationship to that. So let us look at the text before us today. Uh, verses 1 through 2, Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and, and my mind, for your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. The first point is the appeal that David makes to the Lord and the nature of this appeal. Paul, I'm sorry, David begins this psalm with a call for vindication from the Lord. He's becoming for the Lord before the Lord's tribunal before the Lord's council. Again, assuming this, uh, the occasion is King Saul. King is the, the one who is king. But David does not have the ability to go to Saul to bring his request before him. But he comes before the Lord of heaven and earth. And so his prayer is, vindicate me, O Lord. Literally, some translations will say, judge me, O Lord. Vindicate, exonerate me, O Lord, in this circumstance. There have been accusations that have been made. There, there are things that have been said against me. In this circumstance, Lord, vindicate me. He's bringing his appeal to the God of heaven and earth. And so the nature of this appeal is who he brings these, this appeal to. This appeal is not made to the, the councils of men. It's not made to the king himself. 
but it's made to the king of heaven, to the Lord of hosts. And consider who that is. Consider the nature of God himself, the one who is before all things, who in and of himself exists, that he does not depend on anyone or any creature for his existence. He is from all eternity. He has always been. He is the creator of all things. As Psalm 33 makes very clear that he spoke and all things came into existence. With a word of his power, he spoke and the creation came to be. That he is the sovereign of the universe. He is the one that rules. He reigns. He has sovereignty and control over all that he has made. Whether it's inanimate objects or it is human beings, animals, creatures, God's sovereignty is over the kings of this world, over the, the rulers, the, the nations of this world, as Isaiah describes, are like a drop in the bucket compared to the Lord. He is the sovereign Lord, and this is who David is bringing his appeal to. But not only is he the creator, the sovereign Lord, the self-existent one, he is a God who loves justice as well. There is injustice that is happening. Where does David go to make his appeal? He comes before the Lord, the one who is the just God, the one who is the ruler over the kings of the earth. Also referring to Psalm 33, for the word of the Lord is upright and all his works done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. The Lord loves justice and he loves righteousness. So God is not only the creator, he's the sustainer, he is the sovereign. He is also the one who is truly just. And so the Lord is the one that David knows he has a heart for God. He has, is in relationship with the Lord. And so David brings his appeal to the God of heaven and earth. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. This is an unusual way to begin a prayer. If you think about it, I mean, how many times do we begin our prayer with the, the request, Lord, uh, I'm, I mean, it's not exactly what David's saying, but I'm, pre I'm pretty good. I'm doing, I'm doing okay. I've, I'm walking in my integrity. I mean, often when we come before the Lord and we practice this in our church, and there's a reason for that, is confession of sin, recognizing our dependence upon the Lord. But it, and we need to keep in mind that as, as David is making this appeal, that his integrity has been called into question, that, that he has been uh, called into question as to how he has been operating, how he has been acting. And so he is coming before again the Lord to bring and make his appeal. And he begins by saying, I have walked in my integrity. Uh, this is an unusual way to do it, but I want to start with what integrity is not. Uh, and then I want to just talk a little bit about what integrity, integrity is. One of the things that, that our family has enjoyed doing for the last uh, four or five years as we, we go looking for rocks. We go out in the woods and, and we go to, to land and, and, and property that is not private property. I mean, the goal is, you know, not, not to step into somebody else's territory and, and take their, their rocks off their land, but we go to, to you know, places where it's, it's legal. And so we have, um, you know, uh, maps and things that tell us where we can go. And, and 
So we usually are looking for a lot of different rocks, but, but my favorite rock to find is gold. I mean, that, that is one of the, the, my favorite rocks to find. Um, so far, I have been able to find, in the last five years, I've been able to find two flakes of gold. Um, and, and I've looked, we've looked, we've, we've been in riverbeds and so on. I've had my gold pan sifting. I'm almost certain that the two flakes of gold was from a bag that we got from Gold Rush or something like that, and it was planted in there. And so I don't know, but, but, but one of the things that, that you don't want to do, and, and that you need be, we need to be very careful of, is we, we don't want to steal. I mean, I don't want to be, if I, if I were to go on somebody's property, imagine this, and were to find a gold nugget, what do you do? Maybe it's a bag of cash on somebody else's property. What, what is it that we should do? And, and again, this is something, you know, you can Google, what should we do? And, and they will tell you there are laws, there are federal laws, there are state laws that, that really give us instruction on this, that you don't, we don't steal from people. But we know as far as our walk with Christ, we know as far as, you know, in following the Lord, that we want to be obedient to the Lord, not only in our thoughts and in our, but also in our actions, that it would, the right thing to do would be to give what is somebody else's back to that individual. If you find a wallet laying on the ground, um, you know, you don't want to take the cash out of it and put it somewhere. I mean, the goal is to have integrity, to walk integrity. The word integrity literally means here to um, have wholeness, completeness, It, 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 is, it, is, um, it is a connection to, um, to soundness, uprightness. It really relates to how we live out our lives. The integrity is, has to do with honesty about who we are on the inside is, is also how we live as well on, on the outside. So in other words, we do not want to uh, take the money and run. That's what we do not want to do. David's claim in the beginning of this psalm and walking in integrity is not a claim that he is sinless. He's not saying here that he's totally, totally innocent of wrongdoing. Uh, we know from David's own life and the many examples and the prayers of confession, some of those beautiful prayers of confession we find in the psalms when David sinned greatly against the Lord, that David is not here saying that he is perfect or totally innocent of any wrongdoing. But regarding the charges against him, he is claiming his integrity, not his complete perfect perfection of his behavior. So the first part of this prayer, of this appeal before the Lord is that he has walked in my integrity. And secondly, that he has trusted the Lord without wavering. He comes here and he appeals to the Lord. He appeals to the Lord in his faith. Notice that he, the, the word walk is, is being used here. He walks in his integrity and he trusts in the Lord uh, without wavering. It is a trust that, that doesn't waver, that, that is firmly planted. And closely connected is, the, again, the integrity uh, and, and his walk in his integrity and also in his trust in the Lord without wavering. One, one commentator put it this way, he trusted not himself in the sincerity of his heart and the uprightness of his life, nor did he trust the goodness of his cause, but he committed it to the Lord who judges righteously and trusted in him that he should not be ashamed and perplexed. This shows from where his integrity sprung, even from the sincere faith 
For where that is true and genuine, there are works of righteousness and integrity of life. So from here, David begins his request of the Lord. He writes, Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. For your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your, your faithfulness. David here invites the Lord to examine his heart. David is asking for God to search his motives and his thoughts. As we know here in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, uh, but the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on the appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man sees the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. The nature of David's appeal is he goes to the Lord, who not only sees the external, but sees the internal. He sees the heart, the, the, the motives, the intentions that are there. And David, in his prayer, he says, Prove me, O Lord, and try me, and test my heart. That is a, that's a very interesting prayer. I was watching this debate. It's, it's been a number of years now, but I just remember the debate between an atheist and a Christian. Uh, it was somebody, I believe, who's fairly local here that was doing the debate. But one of the things that the atheist said is that he did not like and does not like a God who knows your thoughts even before you think them. He just, that to him is the supreme dictator that he didn't want anything to do with this, this, type, this type of God. But notice how that David comes to the Lord, the one who does know the thoughts, the intentions of the heart. And his request is of this Lord that he would prove him, that he would examine him, that he would test his heart and his mind in relationship to the events that are transpiring and are taking place, in, the, in relationship to what is going on and the need and his desire for exoneration for the wrongful statements that have been made about him. He goes to the Lord. David is asking for a thorough examination of the heart and the mind. One commentator notes the meaning of this verse is that he asks of God a strict and rigid examination of his case. These words are designed to include the modes in which the reality of anything is tested, and they imply together that he wished the most thorough investigation be made. He did not shrink from any test. He evidently felt that it was essential to the, his welfare and that, that the most rigid examination should be made, that the exact truth should be known. In other words, in his bringing these things before the Lord, the Lord, he is inviting the Lord to examine and to test his heart and his mind. That there is a refining aspect to this. I mean, that if there is any wicked way in him, if there is something that is there, that the Lord would bring that out to him. When the Lord searches us and knows us, it is a refining process that happens. One of the things that, that you do with precious metals um, I have not done this with my two flakes of gold, by the way, but gold is one thing that you can do with this, is that you heat it up and you get it very hot and it purifies the, the extra stuff, that the dross that is around the gold, that it, it, it burns it away and burns it out. That there is a purifying effect that, that happens here, that takes place. And I believe that this is what is happening with David in his circumstance. His circumstance is one that brings anxiety. It brings stress. It brings difficulty. 
Where do you turn when you're experiencing anxiety? Where do you go when you're under the stress of being chased by the king of Israel? Where do you turn with your anxieties? You bring them before the Lord. You bring them before Christ. This is where we go. This is where we're invited to bring them. And so the Lord, so David invites the Lord to test him, to purify, and to work in him. And David's request here is based on God's love and God's own faithfulness. That there is a relationship that David has with the living Lord. That he comes and he brings his request before him, before God. an interesting statement here for this your steadfast love is before my eyes there's 120 different times that we find the, the lord's steadfast love just in the psalms alone uh, that it's it's brought up uh, by the the psalmist and the, the writers of, of the psalms and david here brings up that really the the nature of his appeal is based on the fact of god's um, of his um, steadfast love The word for steadfast love in the original Hebrew means loyal love. It really incorporates the idea of unfailing kindness, goodness, and mercy. It is steadfast. In other words, it is secure. It doesn't, it doesn't change. And there is a covenant love that David has with the Lord, that God has with his people, this love that is not extinguished. And David is writing as one who has experientially known the love of God. He knows the love of God. He has experienced this love of God. When we are facing challenges, and again, the challenge that David is facing, questioning his integrity here, when we face challenges, what is the first thing that we can often do? When circumstances get difficult and circumstances get challenging, what is the Lord doing? What is God doing? Does he does he, is, is God's love still with me? Does he love me in the circumstance that I am in? We can begin to, ch- to question and God and, and what his purposes are and what he is accomplishing. And I think it's very important that as David is making this appeal, he is the foundation for his appeal is the steadfast love of the Lord is before his eyes. He asked the Lord to try his heart and his mind because before his eyes is the love of God, the love that, of God that is truly amazing beyond what, what we can comprehend. The fact that the God of heaven and earth loves his creatures, sinful, rebellious creatures, that he redeems us, that he saves us, that he calls us to be his own. God's love truly is amazing. So it's in light of God's love, steadfast love that is before his eyes and he says that i walk in your faithfulness uh, he walks in as, as i think as some translations put it his truth that there is a dependence upon the lord in all of his circumstances or upon david that he would walk that he walks in his circumstance again he is highlighting his integrity in the given circumstance in the given situation so here we see the appeal that david makes and who he makes it to it is to the lord that he asks the Lord, invites the Lord to test his heart and his mind based on the steadfast love of the Lord. And the second point that we want to make is the strong assertions that David makes regarding his integrity 
And we also want to consider the second appeal that is made. So notice what David says in verses 4 through 8. I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with the hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Do not sweep my soul away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men, and whose hands are evil devices, and whose right hands are full of bribes. David here describes four type of four types of people. He begins by talking about his association or his lack of association with them. Really, we can see as we read this a very clear allusion to Psalm chapter one. Uh, Psalm chapter one just simply says uh, the first verse: "Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers." So David, again, and, and asserting his integrity and concerning the matters that are before him, that he's bringing before the Lord, he asserts that he, first of all, uh, that he does not sit men, with men of falsehood. That is, that the, he does not sit with men who are deceitful. He does not partake in their lies and the deceit that is going on with these individuals. He does not consort with or associate with hypocrites or pretenders, those who put on one face, but in, in, inside they are, they are different. He isn't a part of the assembly of evildoers. And the idea here is, is David is not going to them for advice. He's not seeking their counsel. He's not associating with them. He's not gleaning from them. Because remember, we need to keep in, in mind here who David is going to. He is going to the Lord. He is declaring to the Lord his integrity. And in, in, in light of that integri in, integrity here, he is not going to those who are evildoers. He is not going to those who plan with wicked, uh, to their wicked count, uh, schemes and, and devise their counsels. But his counsel is from the Lord. What is the result of going to the wicked, as David describes it here, with, for counsel. What, what happens? What is the result of, of doing that, of associating, uh, as David says here, with, with sinners? Several other passages certainly confirm this, but we become like those we associate with. We take the values and ideals of those that we seek advice from. There, it, it has an influence. It has a major. It can have a major influence in our lives, and I, I think it's very important too that the Lord has not called us to live in a monastery. That we have been saved from our sin as as followers of our Lord Jesus Christ. That we live in this world. Um, but the the question for us is: Where do we take our counsel? Where do we turn to in trials and in various circumstances? Who is it that we seek to honor and worship? Who is it that we, we go to? Um, and again, David, uh, making again the strong assertion from Psalm 1, says that in his integrity, this is not where he has gone to. He has not gone to the evil, the evildoers. Again, we should not take this, what, what David is seeing, seeing here as a claim of total innocence. 
the psalmist is describing his, his commitment to a righteous life. Uh, he does not, he is not holding on to the evil and not following the evil of these, uh, these individuals. I don't, I don't take from this either um, that, that there isn't a place for us to, to be involved in the world. As our Lord you know, said, we are to be salt and lights, that we are called to make disciples of all the nations, that, that we, while we are saved from sin and we're saved from the dominion of, of, of Satan, while we are saved and rescued, that we are called to live in the context of this fallen and lost world. That we're called, we are called to rub shoulders with those who do not know the Lord. That we are called to share the gospel, to share the hope that we have in Christ as we have opportunity. And so I think that that is, our, that is to be our attitude, is that we do live in this world. But we are not conformed to this world. We're not conformed to the patterns of this world. But rather we are conformed to, uh, to be like Christ. We're being conformed and transformed to be like Christ. So what David does here in this text is he talks about where he does not sit, who he does not consort with, who he is not following. But from there he continues and he contrasts what he is not doing with what he does do. He says in verse 6, I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud. And telling of all your wondrous deeds. O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. The question for us this morning is who do we worship? David speaks of where his worship is, where his worship is directed, and who his worship is directed to. He isn't worship the kings of this earth. He doesn't worship the ideals, the values of society, but he honors the king of heaven. He worships the Lord. It's interesting how David describes that, describes this here. He says, I wash my hands in innocence, that the symbolism here is that of, of purity. And with our hands, we do things with our hands. Our, our, our hands are used in activities and in, in work. And he is saying that he washes his hands in innocence, that he proclaims thanksgiving around the altar. He desires to be in the Lord's presence, to worship the Lord, to glorify the Lord, to honor the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That is the heart that David has. He desires to worship God. He has a heart of thanksgiving, a heart of gratitude. David recognizes who the Lord is, as the one who is the giver and sustainer of all things that he understands who the nature of God and the, the fact that God is the one that does sustain, sustain us. Um, David continues here that he proclaims and he tells of God's wonder, wondrous deeds. He proclaims the works of the Lord. What an amazing thing that we have to do as God's people is to proclaim God's work, to, complain, to proclaim what God has done. It's truly amazing that God is the sovereign over history, as we said earlier, that he is over history. And we can see in the past, in both the Old and the New Testament, 
And in history in general, we see God's actions, his activity, his hands of his hand of providence working and dealing with the, the things of this world and leading things to the ultimate end. That God did not just create the world, but he has a plan and a purpose that he is fulfilling, that he is, he is bringing about. And when we gather as God's people and we worship the Lord, one of the great privileges that we have is to proclaim the Lord's wondrous deeds, to proclaim his, his mighty name. Uh, it's one of the things that I appreciate about music uh, in, in, the, in our gathering, and, and that's only a part of our worship is when we sing to the Lord, that when we sing that we are confessing, that we are proclaiming the goodness of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God. We're pro- proclaiming his good deeds. I just have never been a fan. This is just this is just a personal thing. Maybe I'll share this. I'm not a, I'm not a big fan of of music that begins with I and me and emphasizes us because the emphasis of our worship is not ourselves. The emphasis of our worship is not it's not us. The emphasis is that we look to the one and we consider and we comp- we proclaim who he is and what he has done. And in our worship, that is exactly what we, are, what we are doing. We are proclaiming his wondrous deeds. Notice the direction of, of David's hands, his heart. They're centered on the worship of the living God. The love that David has for God's house and his presence. The gathering amongst God's people and, and the worship. I mean, it's what he says here, Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. So again, contrasting this where he is not taking his counsel, contrast this where he's not getting his advice, the contrast is where he loves to be in the house where God's glory dwells, proclaiming the mighty works of God is what he is doing. This is where he loves to be. God does not need us or depend upon us Rather, our very existence depends upon him. We live and move and have our being in him. He has our very breath in his hands. He owns all of our ways. I'm drawing from what King Belshazzar learned in the book of Daniel. We are the ones that by his grace that he gives a heart to honor and to worship, to worship him. Just a brief quote from the what the Westminster Confession of Faith just says simply about worship the light of nature shows that there is a God who has lordship and sovereignty over all his good and do, uh, it's king it's old language here and doeth good unto all and is therefore to be feared loved and praised called upon trusted in and served with all the heart and with all the soul and with all the might the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshiped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representation or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scripture. Religious worship is to be given to God, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, and to him alone, not to angels, saints, or any other creatures, and since the fall, not without any, without a mediator, nor in the mediation of any other, but of Christ alone. David's view is to delight in the Lord to worship the living God. In view of David's emphasis on worship, he makes an appeal to the Lord. 
And I think this is also keeping in mind the men of falsehood, the hypocrites, the evildoers, and the wicked, that he says here in this appeal, do not sweep my soul away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men, in whose hands are evil devices and whose right hands are full of bribes. This appeal that to the Lord is in the context of worship, and again, contrasting with the, that of the evil and wicked men. And again, drawing from Psalm chapter 1, I think this is, again, another very clear allusion to Psalm chapter 1, where it says, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So you have two foundations that are here. You have the foundation of the wicked. You have the foundation of the righteous uh, that is compared here. And David has placed his foundation is upon the Lord and the and the and his in with his altar and the worship of, of God Himself, and he does not want to be he does not desire to be swept away with the evil men. Uh, this I can really personally relate to this appeal that 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 David gives here. Again, notice again what it says. Do not sweep my soul away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men, in whose hands are evil devices and whose right hands are full of bribes. When Satan seeks to tempt us, to when we are tempted by sin, that we're tempted to, to walk away from the Lord, that sin is never, I mean, it's not, it doesn't, it's not out there in, in plain sight. It's kind of like when I, I grew up doing a lot of fishing on the Oregon coast when I was growing up, and, and I can remember when I would put a worm on the hook, and, and you got those little barbs on the hook, and the goal is, you know, I was a kid at the time, the goal is not let that hook be seen, but you wanted just a little bit of that barb out there, so when that fish would grab on to that worm, it'd grab that barb, and of course you'd grab a hold, and you'd have the, the fish, you would snag the fish. Sin is, is never looks... It is always appealing. It has that appeal. It has a draw. It has, it, it, it has an allurement about it. To, to walk away from the Lord, to walk away from God's goodness and the worship of the living God. And so David is, is bring, makes this appeal, do not sweep my soul away with, with sinners. I think this is a, a real appeal that he has, finds in the presence of the Lord a resolution to the anxiety, the stress that he's been under with the, uh, the, the, with the circumstance that he is in in this psalm. And he does not want to be swept away with the, the wicked men. We know that our hearts are prone to wander. There's a psalm, the, the hymn says it, prone to leave the one that we love. There is always that temptation that for us to fall back, to fall away. And, and there's that prayer, the Lord, his steadfast love, that he would, he would hold us fast. We would not be swept away by the power of sin. David closes out this psalm with a strong foundation that he rests on. He says, but as for me, I will walk, I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground in the great assembly. I will bless the Lord. The conclusion of this psalm is that, that David begins or closes with 
um, he is going to continue to walk in his integrity. In light of what, again, assuming that it's, it's King Saul, in light of what King Saul's men are saying to him, that he's going to continue in his integrity. He asks the Lord to redeem him, to be gracious to him in this circumstance, for his foot is on level ground. He stands in the great assembly, and he will bless the Lord. One of the things that Eric and I did, uh, Eric is my wife, we went to Montana uh, this, uh, this last weekend. Our kids got us a trip to Montana, and you, guess, you can guess why we went to Great Falls, Montana. There's nothing in Great Falls, Montana. There was the fair. I guess there was the county fair. But we were there looking for rocks is what we were doing. So our kids got us a trip to Montana to look for rocks. And I, you've, I'm sure you've made this trip before. You, you're going to know exactly what I'm talking about. Because you drive to, towards Montana, and you get into Idaho, you go through Coeur d'Alene, and you get to, is it Lookout? No, it's not Lookout. It's the uh, 4th of July Pass. And then you've got Lookout Pass. And it's like the speed limit is 70 miles per hour, and you're passing a truck, and you're taking those turns like this, and, and it seems like the road is just winding. You're going up the hill and, and down the hill, and it's very tight, very difficult. It's, it's very treacherous. And then all of a sudden, you get to, to Great Falls, Montana, and this is what happened. And it, this, is, this is an amazing thing. It was so amazing, we sent a picture to our daughter who's got our driver's permit. Because you can do 80 miles an hour in Montana. I don't know if you know that or not. But on some of those straight paths there, you can do 80, 80 miles an hour, and, and things are straight. And, and uh, you I was unsure about 80. I don't usually, I usually drive 72 is what I drive. I don't hit 80. So I was a little bit unsure. But once the road was straight, I was comfortable with it. And I think there's a similar idea here. The concept that is being said here is that that David, in considering the circumstances that he has been in, working through his way in this appeal, he has brought his appeal before the Lord. He's asked the Lord again to test him, to try him to the very core of who he is. He has upheld his integrity, and he's come to the conclusion that, that he is not on this crooked road or this place that has brought anxiety, but he's come to a place where his path is straight, that his foot stands on ground that is level. It is not unstable, but it is stable, because where is his foot placed? It is on level, it is on level ground. It is ground, these, he's considered these false accusations, he's felt the anxiety and the uncertainty of the circumstances, but he has come to a place where his situation is solid. What greater place to turn to take care of our anxiety, our stress, especially if there are false accusations that are made against us or things that come into our life that are unexpected. What greater place to turn than to the Lord? One of my favorite passages in the Bible, it's a very familiar one, and I just want to read it briefly, is Philippians chapter 4, verses 5 through 7. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What a gracious command that the Lord invites us in the midst of our anxiety, in the midst of the stress and the challenges that we face in life. There's no promise that that stress and that those anxieties are going to be taken away. But he invites us 
to cast our cares upon him, to bring ourselves before him with prayer and supplication, make our requests known to him. I think that's really what David is doing in this prayer is he's making his appeal before the Lord. He's bringing his anxieties before the Lord as we come to the conclusion of this, that he, he sees his foot stands on level ground. There are many ways to consider this psalm, and I think for me the greatest encouragement is really is that of anxiety. But as I read this, there's, a, there's one thing that stands out that's very, very interesting about this, this psalm in the way that, that David writes here. He says, Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity. And I, I mentioned this at the very beginning as well. Just that, That's a, a, a strange prayer for us to pray. To pray. And again, I realize that David is speaking to the circumstances that he is in. But one thing I think it's very important is as we consider the Lord Jesus Christ, who knew the Psalms by heart, that is, he looked over this Psalm, that he would have prayed this Psalm, that we know from the, from the gospel accounts that he prayed Psalm 22 that we looked at just a couple of weeks ago, that, that we see direct allusions right from, from there. And we see this statement, vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity. As though if the Lord, as the Lord prayed this prayer, he is the one who is blameworthy. He is the spotless Lamb of God. He is the one with absolute integrity, with no sin, no fault. David had sin. David had rebelled against the Lord. But as our Lord he would have understood betrayal. He would have understood what it meant to have false accusations and false charges laid against him. And to think of the Lord as he may have pray, prayed this prayer, vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Our ultimate vindication that we receive comes from the one who was the, was the spotless Lamb of God. Our ultimate vindication from the Lord comes from the one who was without sin, who was blameless. The Lord Jesus Christ is a Savior of sinners. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross for our sins. He was buried. He rose from the grave that we might have an everlasting hope. And so that our ultimate exoneration or our justification does not come from our righteousness or from our good doing, but from the work of Christ and, be, and what he has done. And so ultimately, I call to all of us is that, would we, we would find, that we would find our hope and our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, the righteous Son of God who gave himself for us. Let us pray.